Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Battleground with Nick Cater, Senior Fellow with the Menzies Research Centre and the presenter of this programme, which streams weekly on ADH-TV, the fastest growing alternative media platform in the Southern Hemisphere, as far as I'm aware. And this week, defence on the cheap. Last week's strategic defence review leaves us in no doubt that we're in a very dangerous place right now. The rise of China presents the most dangerous strategic threat in our region since World War II. The Defence Review is scathing about the state of our Defence Force, saying it's not fit for purpose. Yet the government says it's not planning to spend another extra cent on defence for at least the next four years. Are they serious? Peter Jennings is one of Australia's wisest defence experts and he'll be joining me shortly. Don't forget Battleground streams on Thursday evenings on ADH-TV, a home of intelligent and free discussion in an increasingly censorious world. You can find us by typing adh.tv into your search engine, or better still, download the app, absolutely free, from your app provider. The Prime Minister made a flying visit to Hobart last week to tell Tasmanians that the federal government will be buying them a new football stadium, $244 million worth. However, the announcement didn't exactly go to plan, as Channel 9 reported. Good evening. The AFL is on the verge of its biggest shake-up in years. Funding for a new Hobart Stadium locked in, paving the way for a Tasmanian team. While footy diehards are thrilled, a group of vocal protesters made their feelings clear during the Prime Minister's announcement. Adam Hegarty was there. On a day about dollars... You can bet your bottom dollar. The AFL boss is thrilled. He wasn't. Well, on the eve of the federal budget, the PM should draw the lesson from that incident. When Australians are doing it tough, battling the scourge of inflation, splashing around taxpayers' money is not a great look. Tasmania used to be known as the Apple Isle. These days, it's Port Barrel Island, a state where three marginal seats at least are up for grabs at every federal election. And both parties make generous pre-election commitments to buy them. Albanese's been critical of this practice in the past. The, uh, can I say this? That the National Party are committed to pork barrelling. They're not necessarily committed to good infrastructure projects. And uh, where projects are good, uh, we're very positive about them. Uh, but the sort of idea that we're bound by what often is projects that benefit private sector interests which are competitive with other private sector interests, are just extraordinary. Uh, the National Party, in terms of the way that they view taxpayer funds as being the same as Liberal and National Party funds, is not the model that 
the Labor government will follow. Uh, we will. Well, uh, that's, it. that's his words, but in practice, it's a very different story. Take a look at this uh, list of promises, some of the spending promises given to Tasmanians at the last federal election. Labor's list is on the left, coalition on the right. Some of them might be justified, roads and hospitals perhaps, but others look like pure vote buying, pure and simple. And Labor's promises, for instance, a $12.5 million adventure hub on the northwest coast, for example, with complete with an obstacle course, cinema, an Aboriginal interpretation centre, an off-road training academy. It goes on and on, doesn't it? 500000 to fit out a kitchen and kiosk at the McKenna Park Regional Hockey Centre and $431,000 for a toilet block at the Mount Montgomery Road car park. Yes, $431,000 for a toilet block. It's going to be quite a dunny. Anthony Albanese says it's the coalition that do the, the pork barrelling, but there you have the numbers just rolling up your screen. $191 million worth of promises from the Liberal Party. Labour promises to come and spend $964 million. And when you add the new Hobart Stadium, which wasn't in the election list, it comes out at a cool $1.2 billion, which in a state as small as Tasmania works out at around 3,200 a vote. Well, the minister should learn from Saturday's backlash. Voters know when they're being bribed and they don't like it. And they know too that the money the government is splashing around is actually theirs. Australian households are being forced to tighten their belts right now. The government must do the same. Peter Jennings will be joining me shortly. But first, let's just talk briefly about the government's big immigration policy, big Australia policy and what it's doing to the availability of housing. In February, a poll published by the Australian Population Research Institute found that fewer than one in five Australians, just 18 percent, want immigration to return to its pre-pandemic levels. Seven out of 10 want it reduced. And eight out of 10 believe that immigration pushes up house prices, something that Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill tried to deny when she spoke at the press club last week. But the public's fears are not entirely ungrounded. If you take the period between 2006 and 2016, for instance, the number of available homes increased by 1.5 million, quite a healthy number, you'd think. But in the same period, 2.2 million migrants arrived in, in Australia. And if we estimate that they need perhaps one home for every 2.5 migrants, that's the average household size in Australia, the new migrants would have occupied at least half of the extra homes at least. Now, don't get me wrong, Australia is and should remain an immigration nation. But the number of migrants and more importantly, the qualities they possess are matters that should be kept in check. Anthony Albanese denies that he's introducing a big Australia policy by stealth, but let's have a look at that statement. Big it certainly is. Immigrants have been arriving in Australia at the record rate of more than 7,000 a week since Labor came to power. And we're told that net overseas immigration will soon return to its pre-pandemic level of a mere 3,500 a week or around 20,000, 200,000, sorry, a year. But 200,000 is double the average intake in the years before Labor last came to power in 2007. And to say the big Australia policy is being introduced by stealth is, well, just a statement of the obvious after all. 
important conversations about immigration are almost always confined to the Beltway. Australians are welcoming to migrants, but they expect immigration to be controlled. They deserve the right to be consulted. In the words of John Howard, we should decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. Well, even if you're not a fan of the Labor government, you've got to feel some sympathy for Richard Miles. Uh, he became Australia's defence minister at the most troubled period for national security since probably World War II. Our ally, the United States, has been the supreme stabilising power in this region since the defeat of Japan in 1945. That was when US's 80-year-old president was in short pants. Today, there's a new contestant for the role of regional superpower, the People's Republic of China. And the grim message from the latest official strategic review released this week is that the battle for the control of the Indo-Pacific region has already begun. China has been investing in the largest and most ambitious defence spending programme of any country since the end of the Second World War. And as the review says, this mighty military expansion is happening, quote, without transparency or reassurance of China's strategic intent, which means, I guess, we have to assume that the PRC's intentions are hostile until we learn otherwise. The PRC, it says, threatens the global rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific in a way that adversely impacts Australia's national interests. Uh, the PRC is lavishing riches and loans on our neighbours in Melanesia, the very islands, the very lands where our soldiers, sailors and airmen fought hard to keep out of Japanese hands in World War II. Peter Jennings is one of Australia's leading strategic thinkers. He's now the director of, the, of a new think tank, the Strategic Analysis Australia, along with Michael Shoebridge. He's a former executive director of ASPE. Peter has been a close observer of the rise of China and recognised the threat it poses to Australia much earlier, I think, than many of his contemporaries. He joins me now from Canberra. Peter, let's start with, a, if you like, a helicopter view of the Defence Strategic Review and the observation that when you work through the defence speak and, and try to understand what it's actually saying, the threat to regional security now has to be taken very, very seriously indeed. Uh, hello, Nick. It's great to uh, talk with you. And uh, yes, I think that's a clear aspect of the defence strategic review. Um, However, this is not a new thing. Um, this, this has been uh, the, the sort of considered position of Australian governments for several years now, um, at least going back um, in quite explicit ways to the 2020 strategic update released by then Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Um, so, so what's good about this review, and, and I'm sure we'll uh, talk about some of the things which are less good, but what is good about the strategic review is that it continues that bipartisan uh, level of agreement that China is the biggest risk to security in the Indo-Pacific region, indeed globally, uh, and Australia uh, uh, is not actually well designed in terms of the structure of the current defence force to deal with that. And so some urgent remedial work is needed. That, that's kind of the beginning point of that strategic review. I, I guess one of my concerns about it, Nick, is to say that was also the starting point of the Morrison government's 2020 strategic update. We're, we're three years on yeah. and we still seem to be in the throat clearing stage of working out what we need to do to get ourselves better suited to deal with this 
much more difficult and competitive environment. So, you know, a lot of work still to be done, but at least we collectively recognise the source of the problem. Yeah, well, I want to come on to that and, and unpack some of that later, what needs to be done as opposed to what it appears this government is proposing to do. But first, you know, let's nail the issue here because I, I, there has been a lot of, uh, well, natural instinct to sort of deny that China poses any threat, that it's a wonderful trading ally that and a great friend of Australia, you know, you know the rhetoric. And that's been embedded in our thoughts for many years. And it seems to me that one by one, uh, people who take this area seriously are coming to realise that that's not the case. Not everybody on the left, uh, or certainly in the Labour Party, has yet come around to that view, but it's, I thought, really encouraging, to, as you say, to see the continuity between this government and the previous government, Penny Wong, uh, Richard Miles, uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, have clearly had the briefings that tell us this is serious. But um, I think there, there is an update. There is a, a slight update in this report on the previous one from 2020, it seems to me, and that is the degree of urgency about this. So, you know, in 2020, they said we had probably had a 10-year window to get prepared. Uh, now, in this report, they say, well, three years for the most urgent things we've got to do, and then another range of important things we've got to do in the following five years, and then we've got to keep on going and investing and, and getting match fit, if you like, right into the 2030s. Mm. For that time, we've got precious little time, according to this report, and we've lost uh, the great advantage we had, which is, which is the tyranny of distance. We used to think, well, we're a long way from any conflict. If somebody wants to you know, cause trouble to us, it'll take them a while to get organised. That's no longer the case in the age of missiles, is it? That has completely changed the equation. Yes, and, and that is a development which I guess really does only track to the last half decade or so, and, and, and that is that uh, China has a strategic rocket force with the capacity to reach pretty much any part of the Australian mainland. Um, and because they see us as a close partner of uh, the United States, of Japan, of, well, the, the democracies which are collectively going to push back against China, uh, China does have a big interest in our own military developments and has the capacity to target our, our air bases, our naval ports. Uh, we certainly know that they're very interested in those facilities from an intelligence gathering point of view because China has been sending intelligence gathering, specialist intelligence gathering ships down the Australian uh, north, south, east and west coast to, uh, to, to look at our military exercises and to look at our bases. So that kind of brings the problem up much, much closer and distance no longer saves us from, from that problem. On, on the timing question, Nick, you know, what's driving a, a lot of international analysis is the risk of a conflict over Taiwan. And in particular, Xi Jinping, China's paramount leader, um, really making no secret of his intention to want to bring, as, as the Communist Party would call it, bring Taiwan back under the control of the Chinese Communist Party, if necessary by military force. This is a central theme of Xi Jinping's speeches. Every time he gives a speech to the Chinese military, he says, prepare for war. Uh, you know, we're getting ready for conflict. And if you look at the pace of their military growth uh, and the uh, analysis which appears in Chinese newspapers and military journals, there, there is no lack of very public indication that China is preparing for this conflict, 
and indeed considers that it has a window of opportunity to um, to to engage in military action against Taiwan, perhaps before the rest of the world is, is ready to resist that action, while Xi Jinping is still leader. Uh, and so in the United States right now, uh, in the Five Eyes intelligence communities, in our own defence establishment, although it's impossible to be precise on dates, you know, people are sort of looking to mid decade, the mid-2020s, as being a period of maximum risk. Uh, and so what we see countries like Japan and the US and others doing is is trying to strengthen their deterrence uh, to create a situation where every morning when Xi Jinping wakes up, he thinks to himself, not today. You know, today is too difficult. There's too many variables and uncertainties that don't make me think we can win this conflict. If we can achieve that deterrence, uh, we may be able to get through, I think, a period of maximum risk mid-decade. And, and that's what lends the urgency, at least the rhetoric of which you hear in the Defence Strategic Update released uh, just a few days ago, that you know now we, we have to be worried about the current Australian Defence Force, not this sort of magical force that's going to be uh, created in the in the 2030s and 2040s when we will have our nuclear submarines and our new surface fleet. We've actually got to be worried about the shape of the Defence Force in 2023, 24, 25 and, and the middle years of this decade. And the lesson from the invasion of Ukraine for me, Peter, I mean, some people have taken their takeout of it is that it makes the invasion of Taiwan less likely. I think that that's speculation, which doesn't take us anywhere. But the lesson for me out of it was we didn't know when uh, Putin would launch his invasion of Ukraine until we woke up in the morning and heard it on the news it had happened. Uh, the same, I'd doubtless be true, should China, China take action against Taiwan, except that uh, it's possible we may not even know it then because, you know, as Jim Molan sets out, I think a very credible scenario, the late Jim Molan mm. in, his, in his recent book, uh, one of the first things China may do is cut the submarine cables that connect us to the rest of the world. So, you know, who knows? But it will come. So the message is surely that we have to prepare for the worst with the greatest possible urgency and speed right away, because the worst is very bad. Yeah, I mean, look, I think uh, a, a sort of a sensible read of the Ukraine situation might be to conclude it's a very bad idea to invade your neighbours. But in fact, I think the Chinese are taking a different lesson altogether, which is um, we will do this better than the Russians. You know, we, we are learning from the Russian experience uh, we will be more thoroughgoing, less random, more planned, um, and, and we will make a success of where, where the Russians have made a failure. For the democracies, uh, Ukraine is just a fascinating case study because, you know, there's the famous true story of the chief of German intelligence actually being in Kiev on the day the Russian invasion started from, from the north, from Belarus, where German intelligence was denying that this was going to happen. It simply didn't make strategic sense from, from the perspective of uh, the German intelligence community. And I, I guarantee you that if we do see conflict in um, uh, uh, the Indo-Pacific and around Taiwan, then right up until the moment the missiles start flying, there'll be people saying, this is not, this is not sensible. Uh, don't people realise that this is going to do damage to trade relationships, for example, it can't happen. Um, 
you, you know, we need to get this kind of denialism out of our system uh, and understand that simply because we have been through a period of 20 or 30 years of closer integration in the world through through globalisation and trade, that moment has, has come to an end and we are back in a world where hard military power is going to become the defining characteristic of the global balance of power. That's what's happening in the Indo-Pacific. I, I don't think any country has a harder time uh, sort of accepting this point because so much of Australian national wealth for 30 years has come from building that relationship mm -hmm. with China. And, of course, all of this is going to be swept away instantaneously the minute the uh, uh, kinetic conflict starts. But nevertheless, this is the world that we're in. And, you know, it's intensely difficult for governments. But in, you know, the, the 2020 statement that we've mentioned, the, the, the document that Mr Miles released just a few days ago, you, you see governments reluctant, reluctantly having to accept the reality that hard power is back and military power is back. Um, and that's going to change an awful lot about how Australia thinks about its strategic future, wh whether our governments want to be dealing with that issue or not. So, so where I want to come to in this conversation, Peter, is to talk about the disconnect between what the government says, uh, the, 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 the degree of threat we face, according to the government's own words, and what they're actually doing. So you're right, you know, in this report... Richard Miles writes an introduction. He says, the risks of military escalation or miscalculation are rising. And then he, speak, he calls this the danger of kinetic conflict, which I guess is what we used to call an actual war. Uh, short of that, yeah. of course, there's the prospect of yeah, economic coercion, including such things as the interruption of our fuel supply. And we are in a very vulnerable position. Everybody knows, or it's very well known, that we have a, a limited supply of liquid fuel on our shores. We rely on our supply chains to Singapore largely and elsewhere to bring us that fuel. More than that, I think um, completely underappreciated to date has been the amount of the amount of dependence, the degree of dependence that we're coming we're putting ourselves into on renewable energy. We're becoming heavily committed to renewable energy to keep the lights on. And guess what? Saudi Arabia is the... Uh, sorry, China is the Saudi Arabia of photovoltaic cells and has a large input to other, other things like uh, wind turbines and so forth. So we're going to have a supply problem there. So we've got a real problem on our, on our doorsteps here uh, should China uh, decide to ratchet up the pressure. And yet the government's reaction to this report seems to be, all right, well, we'll deal with that, but we're not actually going to spend any actual money. Uh, Beijing will be reading this and thinking, hmm, they're not really serious, won't they? Yes, and I'm afraid there is some justification to, to accept that that charge is correct, that they aren't serious. So I, I think something has happened here in the last few months that's a little difficult to, to sort of track publicly, but... You know, if you go back to just after the election uh, campaign and, and the, the few months after that when Mr Albanese was going to NATO meetings and those sorts of things, the, 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 at that stage the government was saying, look, we've got five big priorities and, and defence was one of them. And I believe that Richard Miles was positioning with this review that's just been released to um, at least... Um, make a pitch to say defence spending should rise. I mean, they, they have been talking about the inevitability of it rising. 
Miles was saying that this review was going to be the biggest thing, you know, since uh, really the Second World War, it was a major, major exercise. The, the, the most telling thing to find in that in this document released on, on Monday is in the very brief finance chapter at the end of the book, which says there is no new money for defence for the forward estimates. That means to say for the next four years. Um, and so that leads me to speculate that there's been a fight in the National Security Committee of Cabinet and those arguing for more money to be spent on defence have, have lost. And so this is no longer a, a government priority except in rhetoric only. Um, now, how do we get to that point? Well, I mean, I, I continue to speculate about the in, inner workings, but, you know, we, we also have out of foreign affairs um, a, a line which says, well, we're attempting now to stabilise our relationship with China. Uh, and I do believe that means that there's a bit of a fight going on inside the bureaucracy, the national security community and the government uh, between those who say this is a full-on emergency and we've got to do more for defence to prepare. And those who say, no, no, that's overstated. We can manage things with China. Um, it doesn't, uh, war, war is not inevitable. Let's just keep keep on and keep calm. Uh, and, you know, th th those two sort of con con uh, contending points are in, in fine balance right now in, in Canberra. No surprise that uh, I'm I'm on the side of the argument that says we've we've got to do an awful lot more, but I'm also of the view Nick that it's in some profound ways too late. Um, if we really are facing the prospect of a, of a military conflict in in the mid decade, we we are too late to to do much to change the the shape or the capabilities of the Australian Defence Force in 24 months or 36 months. Mm. Um, and that becomes clear in the strategic defence review when you when you see that, in fact, what the review promises, apart from being clear about no, no new money, uh, we have a series of further reviews which are now being proposed to come to fruition in, in 2024. Of course, we'll have an election in 2025. Uh, and so I think there's a risk that with the AUKUS deal signed, uh, the government is now saying, well, that's it, that's national security fixed for this term of, of office. Um, and they've come to the conclusion that it wasn't quite the priority that they, they thought it was and were talking about it as being uh, towards the end of 22. Yeah. At some point, though, the government's got to put our money where its mouth is, right? And it, 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 so it is, it, is, it is willing to right. acknowledge that we have a problem here. Look, I, and I suppose in one sense, Peter, all of us who believe in, you know, fiscal prudence uh, should be pleased that at last the government has found a problem that it doesn't think it can fix by throwing money at it. But the... the, 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 the wrong problem. <laughs> it's the wrong problem. But, yeah, I mean, but, the but, national security conservative, I believe in government spending money on defence and, and it's just that you see the problem we, we have here, I think, is that we've lulled ourselves nationally for 30 years into thinking that Australian defence interests can be paid for at about 2% or less of gross national product a year, not realising that, in fact, what was actually um, absorbing the real cost of our security was, was a different country called the United States of America. 
Uh, and, and of course, as you as you well understand, the Americans have had enough of paying for other people's security. So, so um, the challenge is to persuade governments that two percent doesn't cut it. That in fact, three or four percent or more is probably what's needed if we are genuinely going to be what Labor aspires to, which is incredibly more self-reliant in defence. Um, but you know, so often as the case with Australia, we like to talk a big talk about our, our role in the world and our role in national security. And then when it comes to paying the bills, um, there's there's less appetite for that. Mm. Well, you, you you quite rightly point to the proportion of uh, our, our gross earnings that we spend on on defence. It, it's advanced now to two percent thanks to uh, policy of the Abbott government. But it clearly needs to be much more than that, 3%, 4%. Israel, I note, which is a, I always look at as a country that's had to learn to be self-reliant, uh, be prickly to, to have the deterrence to stop people taking advantage of it. Uh, that's a 5% spend there. Uh, so yeah. we are talking serious money in one sense. And yet, and I, I don't come to you as a fiscal uh, analyst, analyst or anything like that, but... You, you have to raise eyebrows when you think that the National uh, Disability Insurance Scheme on its current projection will cost more than our defence budget by 2030. Surely there comes a point where we have to have trade-offs, you know. Government can't pay for everything yep. that people want, so you look at the most important things. And I, I fail to see, you know, why they can be avoiding spending on defence, the spending that we desperately need, because there are other things more important. I, I just don't see what those things are. I mean, what the 20 billion or so they're throwing, for instance, at renewing the electricity grid, and that's only part of it, so that we can get a great, greater density of renewables. Surely there comes a point where you say, well, priorities, chaps, if, we, if our borders are not secure, then nothing else matters. Well, of course, when, when it comes to conflict, um, uh, no, nothing else does matter, and, and, and the history of Australian investment in defence has always been that we see big spikes up when we do find ourselves at war, First World War, Second World War, Korea, Vietnam, e even um, uh, you know the small conflicts of the of the Middle East kind of demonst demonstrate that point. And and I do have sympathy for. Uh, fiscal conservatives in one sense because, you know, they will be saying, well, you know, we're spending uh, $46 billion a year right now on defence. What, what are we getting for that? Mm. And and the truth of the matter is, um, well, actually a disappointing amount. Uh, you know, we, we're not, um, uh, we, we do not have a force that's uh, frankly ready to, to go to war right now. Uh, the government is... Um, Again, in a bi with bipartisan support, is about to spend a lot of money on missiles um, I, for both Air Force and Navy, and indeed uh, the Army as well. And I'm I'm very happy that they're going to do that. But I'm waiting for someone to sort of ask the question: Well, are you, are you saying to me that you you bought all these ships and you bought the Joint Strike Fighter and the F-18 and you did not have missiles for those? For those platforms, because that's that's the answer. I mean, we, we had tiny numbers of stocks of weapons for training purposes, and um, I can just imagine the sort of looks around the National Security Committee of Cabinet when Prime Minister learns, well, yeah, we've got the aircraft, but did, did you actually want us to arm them with weapons, Prime Minister? Oh, that's <laughs> going to cost extra. Well, it's going to cost billions extra, um, and it, you know, we we are simply 
now dealing with the, the 20-year consequence of underinvestment in defence over all of that time. And, and no one government is going to be able to, to compensate for that in one year or two years. It's, it's going to take a lot of rebuilding. And um, who would be a cabinet minister having to deal with these sort of guns versus butter trade-offs? Um, but what I know from being a student of history is that when, when push comes to shove and military conflict is, is uh, barreling down towards you, at that point, governments tend to spend whatever it takes uh, and deal with the consequences later. And again, I come back to the disconnect between what the review says and I think what most most security, security and analysts would agree uh, that we have to fight, have to be prepared to fight our battles further away from our national borders than ever before, that we need to be able to uh, intervene uh, at long range uh, if we're going to defend Australia, prevent harm coming to our shores. Forward projection, as they call it in defence speak, right, that's fine. But as you pointed out, how can you then justify not going ahead, for instance, with the acquisition of B-21 uh, Raiders, which are these long-range stealth, stealth uh, fighters, as I understand them, which you can arm with, you know, whatever missiles you need, and you can actually project your force quite economically uh, over long distances. This, this is the problem, isn't it? You know, we're saying one thing, but we don't seem to be making the decisions which would lead us to be more capable to, deal, to, you know, to deliver the kind of capability we clearly don't have now. Yes. Well, um, the, the B-21 uh, long-range strike bomber was, for me, a bit of a no-brainer in terms of thinking about how it would be suitable for, for Australian interests. This, this is a new aircraft. You can think of it as a, as a replacement, if you like, for aircraft like the F-111, which was a long-range strike bomber that Australia operated from the 60s through to, to the 90s. And then when that was retired, really, really nothing to replace it. Um, and the B-21 is ju just at this moment now starting to roll off production lines in the United States and will be accepted into American um, Air Force service in uh, a, a year or two. Now, Australia could have been a part of that, that program. Uh, and B-21 is, is literally just a missile truck. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, an air, a stealthy aircraft with the capacity to take a very large payload of missiles, a very long distance. Looking at our geography, um, a, a pretty attractive thing um, to lift deterrence, to prevent conflict. Now, um, the, the uh, Strategic Defence Review says where we looked at it and um, we just decided that it's not appropriate for our strategic circumstances. I think that's just code, Nick. Uh, it, what, what that is actually saying is, look, the Air Force is too small. It's only 50, less than 15,000 people. It doesn't have the capacity to take on an entirely new um, aircraft along with the dozen or so other types of aircraft that it's operating already. And in any event, we have a, an Air Force senior leadership, which has um, come from the fast jet mafia, the, um, which has always been the, the, the people in, in power. And, and then they want to continue to put the emphasis on F-35 and Super Hornets, the, the small fast jets that have multiple different combat roles. So that's an opportunity foregone with a piece of technology that um, is in production in the United States right now, great shame. But there's no way uh, government could have contemplated taking that on without agreeing to spend more money on defence. You know, you cannot get that 
uh, on top of everything else for two percent of gross national product. So, so that's uh, a, an opportunity lost. And, and look, I'm sure you'll agree with me that the general thrust of the fact that we have to be more focused on what our major threats are, you know, what are the major strategic challenges, uh, rather than just spread our resources too widely and too thinly, which is probably what we've been doing for 20 years or so, that's important. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've got distracted, if you like, with the capacity to go in and help flood relief in Lismore and whatever, which is terrific stuff, but that's not in the end what the defence forces are there to do. We should have other other domestic agencies that, that step up to the plate there. So fine, we, we have to do that. But there's a danger, of course, in, um, if I can use the cliche, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And I think, again, as you've pointed out, they seem to have be in danger of doing this when it comes to you know armored defense vehicles that you can use in uh, for infantry in, in combat and it, we're going to cut apparently uh, by two-thirds the number of vehicles that we have we're going to go from three battalions to one i mean at a time when we're seeing um actually the australian vehicle the australian uh, uh, vehicles being used so effectively in ukraine and ukraine's crying out for more because they're ideal for yes. the kind of war they're fighting it does seem a little counterintuitive that we're going to start dis disinvesting in them ourselves yes a little a little counterintuitive nick i mean if, if only there was a modern war somewhere that we could look at to learn lessons from about the use of armored vehicles in conflict of any only there was something like that that we could actually study and, and analyse. Uh, look, I find this really strange um, about the biggest force structure decision in the Strategic Defence Review is, as you say, this, this major cut of um, armoured vehicles uh, that were going to sort of re-equip um, the, the bulk of the Australian Army. So our army is predominantly a light infantry force, but light infantry uses vehicles to move to the battlefield and um, in armoured vehicles to protect them in high-threat environments. The, the review now basically strips that capacity out of the army with the exception of one battalion's worth of vehicles, a battalion being about, you know, five, 600 people on a good day. Um, now, um, th there are actually quite a few analysts in this town high-fiving uh, this, this outcome uh, because in, inside the Beltway, Nick, there's, there's been um, a theological fight over the role of armoured vehicles uh, for, for the Army over 20 years now. Um, and one side of the fight says, look, these things are too heavy, they're too difficult to move, and where anyway are we going to have a fight that would actually require us to have these weapons. So let's let's get rid of them. And they've won that battle. Um, but the problem with the way the government has now accepted this recommendation is that there is nothing to replace it in terms of what it is we're asking our army to do. So they're getting a few more amphibious ships which will never be used in hostile situations, but they'll be great for, for example, delivering disaster relief in, in the region. So that, uh, the Army's also getting some long-range missiles themselves, anti-ship missiles. Well, that, that's great, but that, that's not going to be something that will um, absorb the bulk of the, the 30,000 people that are in, are in the Army. So, so here we have a situation where I think this has really gutted the, the capability of the of the army 
and, and the implications of that will play out over the next little little while now. Now, you might say, okay, well, if the problem was that these vehicles were too heavy and too difficult to move, um, why not just make a demand of industry, give us lighter vehicles, give us more deployable vehicles? That has not happened because the government wants the money they're going to save from building these vehicles in Australia to buy missiles, right? The very missiles that we do not have in storage for use with our aircraft and with our ships. And, um, and so again, we're, we're up against the consequences of not increasing defence spending. You know, my take on this, I, I could be persuaded that there are better ways to spend that money uh, for the army. But I do want to have an army that is able to do high-intensity high combat. And everything I've read in military history tells me that armies ultimately are victorious when they win the close-in battle, the close-in fight. Um, it's not something that is just dealt with by missiles with ranges of several hundred kilometres. So I, I fear that what's happened here is that without appropriate consideration, there's been a hole punched in the capability of really the central part of, of the Australian Army that has not yet been fixed with a different plan. Um, and that is going to cause enormous difficulties going going forward. And, and then, sorry, I realise that I'm getting a bit long in the answer, but just to make another point here, there, there's a lesson for Australian industry in all of this, which is to say the vehicles that were about to be produced for the, for the Defence Force are the product of years and years of decision-making with companies in Australia gearing themselves to produce these, these vehicles. And so if you're a defence industry, um, you, you're now thinking to yourself, well, I can have, you know, 10 years of advice that this is what's needed that can be just whipped away from me in five minutes without any explanation. How, how do we expect industry to come to the party supporting a more um, stepped-up defence effort if there's no consistency in, in planning around um, how it's going to be used. You know, billions have been sunk, literally billions have been sunk into building this industrial base. And now, does it have a future in Australia? Well, maybe exporting stuff, but um, at least not on the basis of decisions that were made. We, we, should, be, we should be proud of this stuff. I mean, the only car industry we've got left in this, this country is essentially the Bushmasters, isn't it? And, and, these are, and we know from... Well, first of all, the Australian lives, which those Bushmasters saved in Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, are now uh, seeing how sought after they are by the Ukrainians because they're basically battle-winning machines on that sort of terrain. Surely, you know, a government that wanted to expand its its national manufacturing base should be seizing hold of this and say, go for your lives, you know, let's support you. I mean, I'd love to see them perhaps produce a domestic version. It would be fun, wouldn't it, driving yeah. a, a Bushmaster across the Australian uh, outback? But look, it's I'm not happening. I'm not sure our road would stand up to, to that, Nick, to, to tell you the truth. But, uh, I mean, you know, the, um, the uh, Ukraine's ambassador uh, here, here in Canberra, um, uh, says, uh, you know, very proudly that Australians, if you ask Ukrainians, what do you know about Australia? The, the answer is Bush, Bushmaster. Yeah. Uh, it's been a very successful vehicle uh, for them. And, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, th there's another irony in all of this too, which is that we, we have, despite many calls, um, the strategic review does not get rid of tanks, right? We, we operate Abrams yeah. tanks from the United States, very heavy, very complicated machines. The previous government spent about a couple of billion dollars buying some 
uh, Abrams from, from the American army right at the end of the Morrison government experience. So, so um, the contract's been signed, sealed and delivered, the money's been exchanged, so we're not, we're not getting rid of the tanks. So now we have, we have an army with a strong armoured corps, um, but uh, an infantry with, with no mobility to bring them into the battlefield with the tanks. Um, and of course, they all fight as a, as a combined unit. It, it's, it's just um, an unthought through mess. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry to be so negative about it, but that is my best best read of it. Um, and, and it's going to take a lot of unpicking to work out, you know, where, where do we go from here? Yeah, normally we seek a redemptive ending to these interviews, Peter, but I'm not going to press you for that on this topic. But I, I would just in conclusion, though, ask, ask for your thoughts on the game that China's playing. Uh, in recent months, we've seen China uh, working hard to you know, step step past the federal government, step past Canberra and start building intimate relations with uh, the states, notably with Victoria, with Western Australia, where the, the Premier seems to be, uh, you know, infatuated with China and all things Chinese. Uh, it, what game is China playing here? And, and what's the danger if Australia is unable to show us a firm united front when it comes to foreign policy towards Beijing? Well, this, this is happening all, all around the world. Um, China is finding, um, particularly with the developed democracies, that it's getting harder and harder to do business with central governments because those governments have intelligence agencies and they're now suspicious of engaging with China. So they are actually going to second and third tier level governments, state governments and local governments. Um, and they're doing their best to sort of undermine the position of fed federal governments by coming up with uh, premiers. It's happening in the Canadian provinces, the American states, um, you know, uh, to open another can of worms if we do get a voice, uh, a, a representative body for Indigenous people um, through the referendum, uh, you can be guaranteed that some of the first people that will be rocking up to establish relations with the voice will be from the embassy of China. Um, uh, so, so China understands that a great way to undermine um, the strength of um, national government attempts to push back against Chinese covert influencing is to go to other sources of power, go to governments, go to the vice chancellors, go to the business community. And China's been working this scene very hard in Australia for you know seven, seven or eight years now. I, I had thought that we'd learnt a little bit from the COVID experience to diversify risk and to to sort of go elsewhere, but it's just been very disappointing to me to see the premiers all lining up to go back. Uh, and I, I think that just shows a lack of imagination in Australia's politicians and um, officials uh, that we can't actually, we don't have the smarts to, to reduce risk by building relations with other countries. Why can't these premiers go to Japan? Why can't they go to Europe and, and find other markets? But no, no, straight back to Tokyo. Uh, and, um, you know, they say, oh, well, we're not doing foreign policy and defence, but they are creating facts on the ground by cooperating with the Chinese Communist Party, and that's something Australians should be um, really upset about. Well, to update the old cliche, never come between a Premier and a bucket of yen. Uh, but, look, um, yeah. thank you for your analysis. Uh, we well, in this case, you, I would like them to be going <laughs> They'll take any currency you like. Um Anyway, Peter, let, let's let's put in a plug for your your new uh, 
organization and your newsletter. Uh, tell me about it. How can people find uh, how to subscribe to your newsletter and, uh, and get more of your insights every week? Nick, thank you for, for the plug. Uh, so with my uh, uh, friend and colleague, Michael Shoebridge, we, we have established a, a new entity called Strategic Analysis Australia. Uh, and if you search on Strategic Analysis Australia, that will come up as a new website which is focused on the harder end of defence and security uh, in terms of writing public commentary from experienced people that know how policy is, is made in this town and, and globally. And uh, people will be able to subscribe to receive um, a, a regular email update of what material is available on the site. Um, this is very much a, a work in progress. Uh, it's only been uh, live really just 24 hours longer than the uh, Defence Strategic Review. So uh, it's going to take us a little while to get all the bugs working. But um, I, I hope this is going to be a, a good source of informed commentary on defence and national security issues, which should be of interest to your audiences, Nick, um, uh, to people who work in the, the policy community uh, in Canberra, uh, defence industry, uh, a diplomatic community. That, that's the audience that we're aiming to uh, uh, cater to with, uh, with our work. Well, thank you, Peter. So Strategic Analysis Australia is what you need to Google, perhaps Strategic Australia, Analysis Australia, Peter Jennings, just to be sure, you'll, you'll find their site. Oh, and uh, look, I'm really glad you've taken the time out to join us today. And uh, this is, we look forward to um, inviting you back to, to get more of your analysis here on uh, ADH TV. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Thanks, Nick. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your many emails and comments. Please keep them coming to nickcater at adh.tv. And we'll finish with a, a few highlights. Helen writes, increased productivity, easy. Get rid of holiday payloading. Get rid of some public holidays. Get rid of employee benefits, which are extreme and overly generous, and make all superannuation the same for everybody. Having just spent three months in Canberra, the sense of entitlement is hideous to perceive. Chasey wrote in with this advice. Drink, smoke, play the pokies and punt on the horses. What's the point of being frugal if savings are to be confiscated by irresponsible and incompetent government? And David comments, governments have been absolutely shameless in trading money for votes since Howard and Costello lost. No one has really made any effort to tackle productivity or red tape or make the public service accountable. And there was this suggestion for Treasurer Jim Chalmers from John. Why not sell the ABC? I know it's $1.2 billion per year of free advertising for Labour and the Greens, but desperate times call for desperate measures. There were hundreds of comments in response to my column on the hype over green hydrogen. Many of you share my doubts about its potential. Suzanne writes, the proposed green hydrogen revolution based on wind and solar will never happen. Why? The physics is against it. The input energy required to break the bond between hydrogen and oxygen is huge. Compressing the gas, building suitable containing and transport facilities, then decompressing the gas at its end point are all hard, hugely energy intensive tasks. Again, we have a policy with no real costing, no real understanding of the implications of the proposal, but lots of wishful thinking. 
Uh, that just characterises our whole approach to climate and energy right now, doesn't it? Mike wrote from the Hunter Valley, great piece as always, Nick. Unfortunately, you admitted the marketplace reality. Australia will again be competing against heavily subsidised hydrogen produced in the Middle East, Europe and across the Americas. Japan has a burgeoning subsidised hydrogen industry, as do most developing nations. Our primary competition to become a green hydrogen superpower will be taxpayers from around the world with tens of billions of dollars of funding of their own nation, funding their own nation's market development efforts. And there was this from Philip. Green hydrogen is right up there with the Y2K scam. You're spot on, Nick, with your comment that Australia will never become a green energy superpower. Well, I clearly touched a nerve with my column about immigration in The Australian recently. Uh, Lawrence wrote, this level of immigration makes it hard for our sons and daughters to find employment after they leave school and study. It is even harder for older people to find a new position or after redundancy or wanting a job to make ends meet. Labor has no sympathy for us battling Australians. Immigration is a good thing for Australia, but these huge numbers hurt us locals. Marlene continues in a similar vein. How and where can we house these migrants when we have so many homeless now in Australia? We have families with young children on the streets and in cars and tents who cannot find suitable housing. We have elderly women who can't afford accommodation or access to social housing. Migration needs to be severely restricted until we build infrastructure to service house and house our current population. Harold wrote in to say, this lunacy has to end. None of us voted for this. A recent article said 750,000 immigrants will arrive between now and the end of, of next year. Our infrastructure is groaning at the seams. Housing shortages abound in every state. Homelessness is at unprecedented levels. And this government expects us just to sit back and accept this. Finally, from Scott, I'm guessing that none of your arguments will see the light of day on our ABC, Nick. Well, I'm guessing not, Scott, but you'll certainly hear those arguments here on Australia's fastest growing alternative media platform, ADH-TV. I'll be up ne back next week for another episode of Battleground. In the meantime, thanks to everybody here at ADH-TV, to the team at the Menzies Research Centre, and most of all, thank you for watching. <laughs>